Good evening, everybody. This is Evan Young with the Boxing Forecast. I come at you with a heavy heart and utter shock that I'm talking about the life and death of marvelous Marvin Hagler. As boxing fans know across the world on Saturday night, as everybody was tuning into the fights, uh, word uh, crept out that Marvin had passed away and it spread through the boxing world and the world boxing and non-boxing alike, quickly. It really showed the, the impact that Marvin has had on the, uh, had on the uh, boxing world and the world. I mean, he was really a iconic figure, and that was borne out in, in his death, that uh, the remembrances of him. Uh, of course, most people recall the two major fights in his life. Well, he had many major fights, but the two fights that get the most attention are his win uh, with Thomas Hearns, the three-round war, and, of course, his uh, bitterly disputed uh, split decision loss to Sugar Ray Leonard uh, in his last fight. But I'd like to go a little deeper than that and just show... Uh, some deeper uh, appreciation and respect for the marvelous one, and, and I had the unique experience of growing up uh, in Brockton, Mass, as he was uh, rising in the ranks. It was quite an interesting parallel. Me, a young kid, I'm a, probably about uh, you know in the range of ten years younger than Marvin. So, to as a kid, obviously he seemed like a much older person. And uh, and I recall, I, probably when I first started to hear about him was maybe 74 or so. And, you know, I was beginning to be a fan of boxing. Obviously, I knew about Ali and the big fights. And uh, Rocky Marciano, of course, is from uh, Brockton. And I know his brother and many of his relatives uh, as well. So, you know, Rocky was a big part of Brockton, and to my parents and other, you know, my friend's parents grew up with Rocky in the 50s that were, uh, you know, that were celebrating his victories and having massive parades in the city upon his victories. Uh, I know back in those days, uh, my father told me of people watching... uh, Rocky in the stores. They'd stand out on the streets in downtown Brockton and watch on a TV because not everybody had a TV back in 1956. So, and that was the way people could get together and be together and watch the fights. But I can't express the the shock I of losing uh, Marvin this way. It's just it's just something I never imagined this way or this soon. I mean, it was obviously way too soon. He's 66 years old, and uh, I always got the impression and the information that he always kept himself fit. He never really uh, veered off too much from his fighting weight, even at his age. He was probably, my guess would be he walked around at 175, 80 pounds maybe. That would be my guess. Uh, The last time I saw him was in 2017. Uh, He appeared... uh, he was in Brockton, and he was appearing uh, at a local community college, and I was able to 
get in there. It was sort of a select few and uh, did a few pictures with him, which was cool. And he looked great. I mean, he really looked uh, he looked pretty pretty refreshed. And obviously, people that have heard him speak know he never appeared uh, compromised in any way. And considering the uh, the amount of rough fights he's had and who he's had them with, that's quite a testament to uh, to who he was. But I mean, Marvin's journey was was quite an incredible journey, and uh, you know, and I was fortunate enough to be able to glom along for some of that ride. Uh, luckily for me, uh, it just happened that. Uh, Marvin's gym, where he trained with the Petronelli brothers, was probably about 300 yards from a shop my father had. He had a beauty supply shop downtown, and Marvin was a frequent uh, visitor in that shop. Uh, He'd get in and get his hair products. He had hair at that time. This was a long time ago, and probably for his uh, family members and whatnot. And, you know, my father always wanted to you know, take an interest in my interest. So I was, you know, interested in boxing and tough guy stuff, and I followed it. And and it got to the point where, uh, you know, we were able to go to uh, many of his great fights live. And uh, it just so happened that uh, while my father didn't know the Petronellis too well, um, we knew uh, most of the business people in the city, we were quite quite friendly with Marvin's uh, attorney at that time, uh, Stephen Wainwright, who's now deceased. And so when I expressed an interest in Marvin, I was uh, able to, we were able to get tickets. And so I recall uh, the first time I saw him fight live, it was against a nondescript uh, fighter named Bob West. Now, this was in 1976. This was the year that Marvin took his first two losses when he went to Philadelphia and uh, challenged some of the best, baddest middleweights on the planet on the road in Philadelphia. Now, Marvin didn't really have any choice about that. He wasn't connected at the time. It was before he was with Bob Arum, but he certainly didn't care. Marvin wanted to fight the best. He always did. And as I grew up and got to know, uh, I got to know his trainer, Goody Petronelli, very well. A couple of years after Marvin retired, I became kind of a fixture there, and I was able to uh, visit with Goody probably several times a week and just hang out, watch the guys spar, who was there at the time. Uh, and on some occasions, even though Marvin was out of the area at that time and making his home in Italy, he would... Uh, stop by the gym and that was always a thrill when I came down uh, to the gym I was living in the Boston area at the time I still am in the Boston area but I was really in Boston then and I'd come down I'd walk in and the marvelous one standing there and it was just like you know the legend is back he's there it was just unbelievable that you know having Marvin's aura around but Anyway, so I, uh, I digress. I went to his fight in 76 with, uh, he fought Bob uh, Smith, and it was after, uh, he already had, this was in June or so, and he already had fought three times in 76 in June. He lost to Bobby Watts, which was a bad decision. 
He beat another fighter named Donovan, went back to Philly and lost to Willie the Worm Monroe, and that may have been his most decisive loss. So he's coming back. He had a soft touch with uh, Bob Smith, who was 6-4, and four, and Marvin carved him up in five rounds. I'll never forget uh, his mom was there screaming for him. That's what, that's what it was like in the local venues. This was at a venue called the Taunton Roseland Ballroom. It's now defunct, but it was... Picture the, uh, the boxing arena that Rocky was fighting Spider Rico in. Kind of like that. And the same kind of crusty folks and characters that were there watching it. That's what it was all about. And uh, <laughs> that's what my father took me to at that time. And so he, he carved through Smith. And he fought four more times in 1976. And one of those... He went back to Philadelphia and fought a fighter that many of you heard of named Eugene Cyclone Hart. Uh, He has a son now that's a top contender in the game. Uh, And Marvin got the win on the road in Philadelphia. That's because he stopped Hart. That's why he got the win. So he got the win in Philadelphia. But he fought seven times in in 76 against iron. A lot of iron. Not everyone was iron, but three or four of those were. And so... You know, I bring that up. Uh, the point is Marvin forged himself well before he was champion, and he had to fight so much longer before he got that title shot. He probably had more grueling, rugged fights on his way up uh, before he got to the title, and it was still amazing. He was able to put together 12 defenses after the grueling schedule that he had. Absolutely amazing. And so... You know, as a kid, I can remember uh, my dad talking about things. You know, when Marvin would walk in the store, he'd say, oh, Marvin was in the store today. He'd tell me. i go, really? I'd get all excited. This was when I was a kid, obviously, uh, probably 74, 75. And I can remember when Marvin did lose those Philly fights, he saw Marvin in the store and he said, oh, well, Marvin didn't look happy today. Did not look happy. He was surly. He, was, uh, he looked, uh, looked upset. And so, you know, the local paper, the Brockton Enterprise, was following him closely. And we, you know, everybody sort of had visions of him winning a title. We were hoping, can he get it? Can he get there? Can he get there? We didn't know. You know, he lost these two fights. I didn't know, you know, enough to know they were, you know, I didn't know how integral they were to his career or if it was going to torpedo his career. But he lost those two in Philly and, you know, and he never gave up the ship, of course. He was always someone that would just continue to grind and go to the gym and improve. And, you know, after the uh, the Monroe loss, which was probably the actual, the largest, you know, it was a clear loss, probably the clearest loss he ever had, uh, definitely the clearest loss he ever had, he admitted it and went back to the grindstone. So this brings us to 77, and this... And this was probably one of his best fights that you cannot find on YouTube. And this was his rematch with Willie Monroe at the Boston Hines Auditorium. I got to go. This was uh, the promoter of this fight at this time was a character named Sam Silverman, who was kind of a kingpin in New England fighting at the time, along with the Valentis. Uh, He had a cigar going the whole fight. He kind of looked like... uh, the promoter for Rocky uh, and Apollo, if you remember that as well. So there's a second reference from Rocky. He's walking around with a cigar. So we had like third row seats. I'm in eighth grade. 
watching Marvin fight Monroe in a rematch. And let me tell you something, that was an incredible contest. They fought for 12 rounds, hardly any holding. It appeared like Marvin was just, you know, as it went along, he took over, he took over. He just was the stronger man. And then in the 12th round, he broke him, staggered him, stunned him, hurt him, down, over. 12th round win for Stop It. 12th round win for Hagler against Monroe in the rematch. And Monroe is a six foot one, very slick, tricky guy. And Marvin got him out of there. It, and it was after that fight that kind of everybody knew he's on his way. He was on his way. And to make matters worse, well, for Monroe anyway, he gave Monroe another fight. They had a third fight in August of that same year in 77. At this point, Marvin had taken everything out of him, and he stopped him in two. So Marvin was the train that uh, kept on going, and he was on his way. And by the way, he fought seven times in 77 as well, including a victory over Roy Jones's dad, uh, KO3, and another tough fighter named uh, Mike Colbert, and a few other decent names in there. So there he was. After seventy-eight, after 77, he's moving along. He's already fought all this iron from Philadelphia. There's really not many people left. Carlos Monzon was stepping out of the picture in 77. In fact, he did retire in 77. In my opinion, I think at that time, after Marvin beat Monroe, he would have beaten uh, Monzon at that level, at that time as well. But Monzon didn't want to fight Marvin. He had 14 defenses, and he was tired, and that's understandable. And he stepped out. So, so the title kind of jumped around a little bit. It changed hands uh, several times, and it was just waiting for someone like Marvin to seize control of it in the same manner that uh, Monzon did. And he did. He, he, uh, he seized control of that title. It was... Uh, yeah, it just bounced around from Rodrigo Valdez to uh, Hugo Coro, Vito Antifermo, and then Alan Minter, of course. So that's how it bounced around. And, of course, Marvin kept busy, five fights in 78, including a win over another Philadelphia legend, Benny Briscoe, bad Benny Briscoe. So finally, uh, in 79, there was no more denying Marvin. The city was going to get its champion. He was getting a shot at Vito the Mosquito Antifermo in 79. Everybody thought it was a foregone conclusion. Everybody knew he was so good, he was going to get it. Unfortunately, there were two judges there that didn't agree with that assessment, and uh, the bout was ruled a controversial draw. Now, I had it for Marvin by five points. I think everybody at Press Row that I read about had it for Marvin. Uh, it was really almost a unanimous consent that he won that fight. Uh, I think Interferon might have been gifted because he was still uh, going forward in the last few rounds, and uh, Marvin may have slowed down a step in the last few rounds that created the illusion of that uh, you know, of that draw for Antifermo, but he got the draw, and and that was it. So it was back to the grindstone again. Mar, you know, Marvin, you know, had gone through 50 fights, and there he was, still 
titleless at that point in time. But not one to wait. He rolled in 1980 with KO of Lou Cefamini, a revenge win against Bobby Boogaloo Watts, decision win over rugged and underrated Marcos Geraldo, and then he got his title shot. Uh, Alan Minter was the champion at this point who beat Antifermo twice. So this time, everybody knew this was, this was it. Marvin was going to seize on this and uh, take the title. And by golly, if he didn't pound uh, Minter from pillar to post for a third-round stoppage. And even with that, he had to suffer through the indignity of being, uh, of being uh, nearly uh, run out of the ring by hooligan fans who were throwing glass bottles in the ring. Uh, Marvin was shielded by, uh, by the Petronelli team, and they whisked him out of there as soon as possible. But he didn't even get a chance to celebrate in the ring. They had to get him the hell out of there. And so there he was, champion of the world, 1980. Uh, so if I can go back, I mean, we just, you know, we just have to, people just have to appreciate what he had gone through to get to this point in time. I mean, he had to fight all these hard fights, pretty low paydays. I think he made 40000 for Antiformal, which is, you know, decent money for 79 but that was his highest payday at that point. And look at how he just had to keep going and going and working. And I know when Marvin started out, the Petronellis really didn't fund him. What Marvin did, what I what I learned from Goody is that uh, Marvin uh, worked for the Petronellis uh, in their construction company, which they had at that time. So Marvin would go out, he'd run in the morning, grind with them during the day, and then go to the gym at night, spar and skip rope and hit the bag. That was his uh, that was his day uh, from '73 when he turned pro until you know, probably for five years or so until he was able to let go of the job and pursue the boxing full-time. But he worked for the Petronellis as a, as a laborer. And it probably helped him in some ways with his uh, physical strength. So that's what Marvin uh, had to do. Also of note, I'm not sure uh, people know exactly how he started with this boxing. He had a little bit of a Small background in Newark, but his uh, mother brought the family to Brockton in 1969 uh, because of the race riots in Newark. So Marvin found himself in Brockton, uh, living in a tough area in the city. And what happened was he ended up uh, in a bit of a street battle with a uh, with a very tough local kid named Darnell Wigfall. Wigfall is from a notoriously rough family. And Wigfall was also a star athlete at Brockton High. He stood about six foot four. He was shredded. He could jump out of a building. He was, you know, a physical marvel. Million dollar body, perhaps with a five cent head. So he kind of beat up Marvin in a bit of a street fight they had out there in uh, in 69 upon Marvin's arrival. It wasn't a very nice... Uh, Nice uh, beginning for Marvin here. So what Marvin did, and this is uh, Goody telling me, uh, one day in 69, Goody's opening the gym, and Marvin walks in, and he sits down. And now there was, you know, some local activity going on at the time. 
people hitting the bag, people sparring, and he sat there quietly. Didn't say a word to anybody, didn't talk to anybody, just sat there and observed. And then he went on his way and then came back the next day, did the same thing, sat there, watched, observed, didn't talk to anybody, just was watching, just just, take, just taking it all in. He leaves. And Marvin comes back for a third day. And there he is, sitting there again. And finally, Goody said, you know, I'm going to approach him. I'm going to, you know, just say, hey. So I walked, so Goody said, I walked up to him and said, hey, do you want to learn how to fight? And Marvin's reply was, what do you think I'm here for? And so that was it. It was forged right at the beginning. He started coming in. Started training, and Goody wasn't the type of guy that waited six months to uh, get guys in the ring. I, uh, <laughs> he was probably in the ring within a week or two. And, uh, you know, as Goody explains it, most kids that go to work out in the boxing gym when they're young, they might join a gym and get hit a couple of times, get a bloody nose, broken nose, black eye. They don't return. It's very, very common, as, as most of you know. But as Goody says, Marvin came back through all the black eyes, bloody lips, broken noses. And shortly thereafter, he started uh, holding his own against, you know, fairly seasoned guys. Now he's, he's still a teenager, by the way. So there he is, you know, holding his own and also beginning an amateur career. And many don't know this, but he you know, after starting in 69, he turned pro in 73. He won the National Golden Gloves at 165. So he was a quick study, and he became a, uh, you know, a top amateur. Uh, and then he turned pro in 73 and, you know, started fighting club shows in the Brockton High School Auditorium, the Taunton Roseland Ballroom, Ballroom as I mentioned, uh, and just wherever they could get a fight, they stayed busy. They took the fight. And I love how Goody would always say this. I'd go down there frequently. He'd repeat some of the same stuff, but I never minded. I always loved hearing it again. And Marvin's axiom was, he never said, who am I fighting? All he wanted to know was, when am I fighting? Didn't care who it was. Just wanted action, wanted a payday, wanted to move forward. That was it. Never... Who am I fighting? Oh, gee, I don't like him. I don't know. You know, that's not a good idea. And obviously the Petronellis weren't. <laughs> they weren't protecting him that way. But you know what? That turned out to be the best thing for him. He didn't need the protection. It, it's very rare in boxing that you get a fighter that can carve through any person, any style, and not have to be, choo- you know, not have to be choosy. Most fighters, even pe- people that become champions, have to pick and choose their way to the top, fight the right guys, stay away from certain guys because their management knows they're not uh, impervious, they're not the one. Well, Marvin, through hard work, fortitude, and some natural abilities that he did have, particularly the ability to take a punch and his incredible physical conditioning, was able to become the man. And he was very confident in himself, and he knew that. So he wanted everybody and anybody. He was willing to take on all comers at any time. 
He fought, you know, guys early on, a year into his pro career, Sugar Ray Seals, a gold medalist, beat him in a decision, uh, had a draw, and then in the third fight, he knocked him out in the first round. So he really just, he was just fighting iron all the time and training, and his work ethic was insane, absolutely insane. And Goody would say he was so excited about boxing as a youngster that he'd come back to the gym the next day and he'd, and he'd tell Goody that he's, he'd come in excited and say, hey, I've been practicing. Goody said, what do you mean you've been practicing? Well, I've been shadow boxing. So we'd go home after a hard day, <laughs> day at the gym as a teenager and shadow box in the mirror. I mean, this guy just knew this was his calling. This was going to be it. This was going to be it for him. Oh, and a little tidbit that some of you may not know, this is a pretty cool story, is that, remember that fighter, that, that fight that Marvin got in, that street fight that prompted him to the Petronelli gym against Darnell Wigfall? Well, Wigfall plied his craft in boxing a little bit as well. So Marvin was able to uh, secure a fight with him early on in his career, they had two fights, by the way, and you know what Marvin does in rematches. So the first fight, Marvin pounded out a, a wide eight-round decision. And then in the second fight, Marvin stopped him in the sixth round and was holding him up and continuing to hit him uh, while he was pretty much out just to give him the message that uh, you're no longer uh, the guy here. And, you know, and it was pretty much over for him that point uh so marvin did get his revenge on that uh on that infamous street fight that uh, greeted him when he came to uh the shoe city in 1969 it should be known that uh you know as i go over his career a little bit there was not many people that were better in rematches i mean if you look at all the rematches he had Sugar Ray Seals, win, draw, KO1. The draw was in Seattle, and that was a bogus draw. It, was, it would have been a win for Hagler. Wigfall, as I mentioned, win eight, KO6. Uh, Bobby Watts, lost majority, rematch KO2. Willie Monroe, lost 10, KO12, KO2. And there's some others in there as well uh, that he had. Of Antifermo, of course, uh, draw, and then TKO5 when he butchered him in the title defense. Just ran through him. Uh, there was Mustafa Hampshire, KO11, then KO3, and then Fulgencio Obamaheas, a very tall, uh, I think he was from Venezuela, tall puncher, 30-0 and when Marvin got him, uh, KO8, and then KO5. So he did pretty well with rematches, didn't he? Obviously, he never got the rematch at the end with Leonard, but at that point, I think he was just uh, tired. And who can blame him? Look at the fight. Look at the career he had. I mean, he put in so much work, so much effort. Uh, it was, and, you know, and just like growing up in that area when he was coming up, it was just so exciting because Marvin kind of blended in with the fabric of the city. He was always around. You'd see him out and about. It was kind of cool, a sighting. Even before he was champion, you'd see him on a moped. You'd see him running through our park, DW Fields Park. Uh, 
He was always cordial, always friendly, always had a wave. And, you know, it was just kind of cool watching his ascension, uh, you know, through time as he, you know, as he uh, was growing as a fighter. And then, and then, as I mentioned earlier in this, in this podcast, that I was able to get to see his fight. So as he won the title, I kept, you know, I was able to get my dad to be able to get us tickets. So we kept going to fights, and it was kind of cool. Uh, we went to, um, so we saw, as I mentioned, it was I, the, la- the last one I mentioned was Monroe in 77, which was an amazing fight. If anybody can find footage of Monroe too, I suggest finding it. It was incredible. I've looked online. I can't find it. They have the third one, but I can't find the second one. Uh, so we went to, um, yeah, let's see. Um, Fully Oval 1. Antifermo two, uh, Tony Sibson, uh, in uh, that was in Worcester, Orford Scipion in Providence, Ham Show two at Madison Square Garden, and uh, and the big one, which was oh, this was fun. This was uh, the first trip I had to Vegas, nineteen eighty five. Thomas Hearns, how cool was that? Just being out there with the whole Brockton contingent. I mean, because we kind of knew everybody that, you know, got to go to these. So with all the businessmen and the people that surround Marvin, you know, everybody was there. We're hanging out at the Caesars Palace pool. We were just on cloud nine. This was, you know, big time. It was fun. This was a big event. We had first row seats. It was just insane where inches from Rodney Dangerfield was you know I got some shots of him actor Camacho celebrities all over the place uh John Madden tons of others were announced just a crazy uh, scene in the old Caesars Palace parking lot absolutely amazing just so much fun just so much fun and then just watching you know sitting there uh, when the bell rang, I just had electricity going through myself with that Hearns fight, though. I mean, that was special. And then Marvin got a little bit rocked in the first round. And, they, you know, my father said, did you see that? He got hit. I go, oh, he wobbled a little bit. And then after that, it was pretty much, you know, Marvin just just uh, moved forward and just kept moving his hands and just Tommy was breaking down. You know, every 20 seconds, he'd seem to get a little weaker and Marvin got a little stronger. And it was just amazing that he was going to pound him into oblivion. Uh, kind of funny little sidelight to that. We happened to be sitting next to uh, Thomas Hearns' attorney and his wife, and she was dressed in furs. You know, he was uh, well-dressed as well. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, accomplished attorney, you'd have to say. And so we... We learned of that acquaintance, you know, prior to the fight. <laughs> but during the fight, uh, Hearns' attorney was objecting to the uh, beating that Hagler was laying on her husband's client and said, oh, God, he's a filthy animal, that Hagler. She just couldn't believe that Marvin was doing that to Hearns. And it was all I could do is just muster a smile and just enjoy the rest of it. Uh, uh, Richard Steele threw a scare into that fight, though, when he tried to get it stopped with that cut. That's That wasn't a good move. It wasn't necessary. 
uh, Marvin was, uh, was not missing him. There was no reason to do that. He was uh, hitting him well and breaking him down. But that was just an amazing fight. That kind of, after that win for Marvin, he knew he arrived. And he did let down a little bit after that. He kind of took a break. He was starting to fight. You know, once a year, I, I explained the grind he had in the 70s. But, you know, as you know, it just kept getting less and less, which is normal. I mean, when you're fighting these huge fights, you can't be fighting, you know, six, seven times a year. But after, um, you know, he still had, you know, three or four fights, 82, 83, 84. He kept very busy. But then when he landed Hearns, that was a big one. Uh, and that was that kind of put him at a point where... I can breathe a little bit. I can relax. And he did. He relaxed. He had some fun. Uh, You know, he wasn't, you know, as Marvin even said himself, you know, if you sleep in silk pajamas, you're not going to be the same. And he started to get to that point a little bit with the silk pajamas. He began to take his training camps from uh, the dunes of Martha's Vineyard to Palm Springs. Uh... And he was just, you know, biding his time, you know, waiting for, you know, he took another fight against an absolute savage at the time. And then in the next year, a year later, almost a year later, against John Mugabe. And that was really a savage fight. Mugabe was really a, a really a tremendous puncher at that time. And he was a pretty capable guy. And he gave Marvin quite a war uh, that Marvin prevailed in. Uh, ruined Mugabe's career, essentially, at that point. And Marvin was fairly worn out at the end of that, too, and considered retiring strongly after that fight. He just feel, felt like he had enough, and, you know, he was getting to the point where he's, he knew he had enough. He's done enough. He was a pro since 73. He needed to uh, move on. He had made a lot of money. Uh, but, of course, uh, the lure of Leonard uh, stood out there, and uh, the money was, you know, tremendous. He was guaranteed 12, and he had... An upside of the pay-per-view, I think it ended up being a $20 million gross, which is unbelievable for 1987. Uh, So we gave up some concessions with uh, uh, the length of the fight, 12-round fight, uh, larger gloves, larger ring. And I think he he felt he would wipe the floor with Leonard. Leonard had fought once uh, in five years, and... He fought in 84 against a journeyman named Kevin Howard, and Howard dropped Leonard in the fight, and, you know, Leonard did not look too sharp. Uh, so, I mean, he's struggling with a journeyman, and then he's fighting Marvin. But, you know, Leonard knew how to take care of himself, and he knew what he saw in Marvin. He knew Marvin was kind of uh, at the point of, uh, you know, he's fading and tired, and it was worth a shot. And he, he took the shot, he got the... Got it worked out, and they had the fight. Now, I'm not here to you know to quibble about the decision. Uh, when I watched it live, um, you know, watching Marvin drop the first four rounds was very tough. It looked like he did mount a comeback, but it is hard to win a fight when you drop the first four rounds, and and many of the rest of the rounds are pretty narrow, so it puts you in a hole to do that. So it's tough. Uh, I have to say, being at that one, well, Mugabe was extremely exciting. We had fun there. But when Marvin lost that decision to Leonard, we were deflated. <laughs> us, us Brockton folks were, were down. We were sad. Uh, we knew it was probably the last hurrah. And uh, 
that ride was uh, was over. But what a ride it was. Um, I did watch it again when I got home, and I tried to be as uh, impartial as possible. And I could see an, an argument giving Marvin seven out of the last eight rounds. I really could. I mean, he was landing the stronger punches. Leonard outlanded him in the whole fight, 315 to 291. And he probably took most of that advantage in the first four rounds. So I would venture to say Marvin probably had edges and landed punches for the last eight rounds. And he certainly landed the harder punches. Uh, you know, make no mistake, he was off his game. He was slower than he was. He looked like he was, you know, a faded entity, a guy that trained naturally and had all that, all those hard, hard fights over the years without a break, never gained weight, always stayed at 160. Uh, he was, you know, an eroded stone, and he still, he still probably did enough to eke it out, in my view. But uh, you know, that wasn't Marvin at his best, and that that did hurt him greatly. That it that that happened, and that bothers me that that hurt him because I would have loved to see him, this great champion, this proud champion, go out with that in, that emphatic win over Leonard, and he didn't do it. It doesn't dampen his career in any way at all, not in the least. I still believe he's the greatest middleweight of all time. Uh, but just for Marvin, just for Marvin to have that, have that great feather in the cap, I, you know, it's almost like when the Patriots lost that Super Bowl where they could have gone 19-0, and although I have much more of an emotional connection to Marvin than the Patriots. Same kind of idea. It was just... Just bitter, heartbreaking, you know, that that's the win he should have had to cap it off. It would have been so storybook. Uh, you know, it, it you know, it does bother me, you know, it really does. I really wanted that win for that. Uh but like I said, it if you look at the whole body of work and you take into take everything into consideration, obviously it doesn't diminish it one iota. He was a tremendous champion. He was well-respected in the world, and especially by people that, you know, knew him well. I probably met him eight times. I didn't know him very well. We weren't super tight, but, you know, I ended up becoming very close with Goody a few years after he retired, and so I was able to sort of learn about that. But in the early years, I was just able to hook in with the the Hagler crowd because of the, you know, the business connections my dad had downtown, and his friends knew Goody pretty well. So we're able to always cop, uh, cop great seats and sort of be part of the, part of the ride, part of the fun, and it was cool. It really was, and it was you know sort of an honor to know Goody and learn about Hagler more. Uh, as as I was there, you know, quite frequently. Uh, the stories, you know, were tremendous. Uh, you know, Marvin was just a. Dedicated blue-collar guy. He was uh, good to his friends. He was good to his people. He was, you know, he he'd hang out in the local, the local haunts when he was here. He was uh, always around. Made himself available. He even wrote a children's book a few years ago. He, uh, you know, he wanted to give back. I think he wanted to be appreciated. He obviously got himself into some acting. Did a movie called Indio and Indio Two with Brian Dennehy, who was a very accomplished actor. I like. I thought Indio was pretty good, good movie. He didn't pursue that uh, too long, but I think he lived a 
very nice and rich life with his uh, with his wife Kay in uh, Italy, and he did keep a home in New Hampshire, uh, which uh, he visited frequently. He'd usually come here in the summer for a bit. I had no idea he was here. Um, ironically, I was uh, out uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I Robbie Sims lives in Brockton. And I know him pretty well now throughout the years, and he lives with his mom, which is Marvin's mom, and I, you know, I did a house flip right near Robbie a few years ago, so I knew where, that's how, you know, I didn't know exactly where he lived, but then I found out, so I was just driving around with my son, and we stopped by, and we talked to Robbie last week, or it might have been two weeks ago, we said, how's everything going, uh, the mom came out, how's Marvin, what's going on, and, you know, you know, Robbie's had some tough times, as some of you boxing people will know, he's, uh, you know, He's not in a great capacity. Physically, he is, but, you know, he does have some cognitive uh, issues. But, you know, so it's hard to kind of get a clear beat on what is happening. But he said, Mar- I think he said Marvin was in the area, but he didn't know exactly where. He was kind of, he's kind of, you know, loses track of what he's talking about a little bit. But, you know, it was just, you know, wild to, you know, to see him and then see that Marvin had passed, because I think that's going to have an effect on uh, Robbie Sims and his mother that are there. I mean, obviously, they'll be taken care of, and I think Marvin was involved with them, looking after them uh, from a distance and afar, Just, you know, and close when he was nearby. He was always, uh, you know, he had to handle their affairs. So I think that'll be, you know, a tough blow. He'll, they'll be, obviously, he'll be missed by them, but he'll be missed by the people that just appreciated him for who he was, what he did, how he conducted himself. You know, if anybody wants to take uh, take an example of uh, incredible work, work ethic and passion, you don't have to look any further than Marvin's career to see someone that took it so seriously, took himself seriously, wasn't a joker, but he really was a good, solid guy. Yeah, he might have been, uh, you know, terse and curt here and there if he didn't feel respected, but he never went over the line, and he was respectful to anybody that was respectful to him. Uh, always grounded, never lost his cool. Good guy. He'll be missed. I mean, he, he's someone that I really expected to go you know, to go into a much a much older age than uh, sixty six. So it saddened me greatly. Uh, it saddened uh, many around here. I've already heard from some of the local business people that you know were involved with Marvin, and they're distraught as well. He really meant a lot to people around here, and he obviously meant a lot to people uh, in the boxing community and all over the world. Uh, just from who he was and just how he conducted himself. So uh, I don't know what else to say. I hope I honored Marvin correctly just by sort of weaving my own uh, story into this a little bit and providing a few little anecdotes that uh, maybe not everybody knows. But he was, uh, he was a special guy special champion and he will be uh, greatly missed so with that I will uh, conclude and I will uh, 
bring back some boxing uh, content for the weekend tomorrow. All right, so I will see you then. Bye-bye, everybody.